be advised, Blue Rose Task Force is filled with secrets and spoilers. Task Force podcast, where we look deeply into Twin Peaks as a whole, one episode at a time, using the full scope of the show Twin Peaks and all its official media. We don't use the word canon, but we consider all official releases important because Lynch and Frost have approved their presence, and we welcome all input into the collective consciousness that is the Twin Peaks community and wider universe. This podcast is a watch-along podcast for those who've seen all of Twin Peaks, including the third season, which we consider as we go along. Today, we are looking at Diane, the Twin Peaks tapes of Dale Cooper, the audiobook that was released sometime between the weeks before the airing of Episode 8 and the days before Episode 9 of Twin Peaks. I'm your host, John. The Diane tapes begin with Dale Cooper in Seattle, Washington, on his way to picking up case files for Laura Palmer and Ron Pulaski. He then heads to Spokane, Washington to pick up a car and drives to Twin Peaks, where we listen to the tapes we hear him record in Twin Peaks episodes up through the end of the Season 2 premiere, along with other new entries that lace what we know with more of Cooper's inner thoughts. As this is about 45 minutes of total material, including material we've already listened to, and that it's more of a snapshot in time rather than a wide, <laughs> a, a wide-spanning uh, piece in, with a ton of mythology, um, the, the questions are a little more simple this time. Uh, what questions are we left with? How do these tapes help us understand Agent Cooper better? How does Agent Cooper's understanding of Twin Peaks help our own understanding of the show's world? And what do we learn about how Cooper views other characters? So these tapes were part of that package deal that they had with Pocket Books, the, uh, the partnership between uh, Lynch for Us Productions and Pocket Books. Um, you know, the, um, the partnership was formed uh, near the end of the airing of season one when, you know, the culture was like wild enough about this. The Pocket Books knew that it would be a comparable sort of property to things like their Star Trek brand. Um, you know, it's 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 a good match. And, um, you know, the the diary was the first one to to be released. And I talk more about how it how the relationship came to be uh, there. But um, as far as how these, you know, why do they decide the diary and the tapes? Well, because they're the most iconic items within Twin Peaks. You know, it's like you've got Laura's diary, which, you know, uh, the lock got popped open. And sure, it wasn't the secret one, but it was a diary that could be read. And, um, you know, the other obvious prop is the uh, the dictaphone, the um the the micro cassette recorder that Cooper uses all throughout this first season, um, 
And, you know, eight of those recordings show up right here, too. So, you know, it really is like, you know, what else is he recording on there? I mean, it makes total sense why these two products were the first ones out of the gate. So, as I said, it's a 45-minute tape, um, or, you know, the length of 45 minutes. It's over the course of 40 tracks. Um, Ten of those were already um, things that we have heard at this point. Um, Eight of them were recordings within season one, and two of them were recorded within the season two premiere. Um, Scott Frost wrote the rest. Um, He's the... um, What he ended up writing here is more about um it's connective tissue and there is enough narrative here like you know like sometimes he just writes verbatim what um what some scenes would be in season one so it's almost like um a refresher and you're not going to get lost like you're going to know kind of what timing these recordings were done in um just based on how much of the plot is uh, explained as we go Rounding out some of the actual time, Lucy's in here for one entry, which was really nice to see. It's brand new recording from Kimmy Robertson as well. And um, it ends with the, um, like, about three minutes worth of Dance of the Dream Man, the, uh, you know, the the saxophone-based song at the end of the Red Room Dream. Um, And it's, um, the, the whole thing is read by Kyle McLaughlin. So it's interesting, you know, it's like we get, um, years later, we get, um, we get Cheryl Lee reading the audiobook for the diary. And then we've always had this where Kyle McLaughlin read it. So, you know, it's like we, we have the, um, the, the two spirit, you know, well, I mean, the one lead of the show has always kind of been a part of this product. Now, Scott Frost got the job, um, through, through his brother, Mark Frost, you know, the, the co-creator of the show. Um, Scott had written a number of unproduced works at this point. So, you know, he was a practiced writer who just needed, you know, something to, <laughs> to get started with, you know, to break into the actual industry. And, um, you know, he gets this call from his brother, Mark, uh, and says, you know, the, Hey, the show got greenlit, come on down. And, you know, we make something out of this. And, uh, yeah, so he uh, he joined the staff. He was on the crew in season one. Um, he's um, <laughs> he's fond of saying that he was uh, he was one of the Icelanders at the party that uh, the horns threw for them at the end of episode five. But as far as how he got the job for these tapes in particular, uh, you know, he, he he told Twin Peaks Unwrapped and a few other places probably that. Um, you know, he doesn't remember anything about this job in particular. And yeah, I mean, I could see why it's, it's mostly connective tissue and, you know, retelling of season one. Um, you know, there, there are slight expansions of Cooper's thoughts, but, um, it's the autobiography that expands this way, way, way more. So, you know, the, these tapes, um, at the end, you know, they, they end up kind of, um, they they feel more like a, uh, a pre-writing for the uh, for the book that Frost will have published, um, you know, uh, eight months later or whenever it was. Um, Wikipedia credits this bu- this audio tape as being published a few days after the season two premiere, but then uh, Stephen Miller uh, over uh, in his article. Sound Peaks, Diane, the Twin Peaks tapes of Dale Cooper. 
assures us that it was released around the same time as the diary in mid-September. Um, you know, I, I don't remember one way or the other personally, so I'm, I'm just kind of splitting the difference and, uh, you know, publishing our episode here, though I will say that, um, uh, uh, Stephen's article has, you know, some spoiler filled newspaper articles talking about what was in the tapes that was published a Friday before episode eight ever aired. So, you know, <laughs> it sure sounds like it actually released uh, beforehand, even though it's got the spoilers of the giant in it. But, you know, I mean, it makes sense to put it out before the season two premiere to, you know, help produce the hype. You know, it, it would also explain why the giant was downplayed in this in these tapes. You know, it's like it's barely mentioned. You know, um, he, he mentions to Diane, Diane, have you ever known any really tall men? And then um, the the last uh, the, the 40th entry here um, is the episode eight closing remarks where like he like casually mentions you know it's like i was so um in need of sleep that i i believe i saw a giant you know basically thinking like man that's the you know dr dreams are weird you know <laughs> that's the impression you get from listening to this so you know i could kind of see that being um intended hype you know it's like what is this about a giant we got to watch this show now as far as um mclaughlin's part in this he does get nominated for a grammy in the uh the 1991 edition of the grammys um for best spoken word album he didn't win but um it's uh it's nice that he got nominated and um and uh, for point of reference that same grammys um angelo Badalamente won for best pop instrumental theme category for the twin peaks theme so, you know, that was the year to be <laughs> for Twin Peaks to be nominated. And I'm glad I at least got one out of two. Usually this would be where we would talk about a Log Lady introduction. But, you know, again, um, you know, there wasn't one because it wasn't a TV episode. And, um, you know, Scott Frost doesn't remember too much about it. And uh, Kyle McLaughlin doesn't really talk about it too much either. So, uh, yeah, we're just going to go straight into the scene breakdown. And uh, first, we're going to hear a few words from some of our fellow uh, Ruminations Radio Network podcasters. What's up, gang? This is Hoptimus. You've been listening to one of the great new podcasts from Ruminations Radio Network. If you want some more tasty sound vibes, come check out my new podcast, The Retro Futures Culture, where we talk about alternate timelines, cyberpunk, anime, and other crazy worlds. If that does not strike your fancy, we have plenty of other great shows at RuminationsRadioNetwork.com. Okay, so we're back. And, um, yeah, these tapes, it's, um, it's not the media stuff, but there is you know there are good details through this and it's only 45 minutes you know the the same length as a tv episode so i recommend you tracking it down one way or another to you know just just listen to it even if it's just once because i know i used to conflate this together with the um the the written autobiography um you know the the book version and like you know i i got it confused you know it's like oh i thought it was supposed to be audio tapes but it's a book and um i know i know some other people are like Oh, I thought it was supposed to be a book, but it's some audio tapes. You know, it's like, no, they are two completely different things. These are unrelated. So anyway, what we get out of Cooper now is um, we're we're going to look into the question: How do these tapes help us understand Agent Cooper better? 
Okay, from a plot point of view, um, I will say that this does not go into the Teresa Banks case very much. It's only mentioned once, and um, because it's um, because this case initially doesn't look like it's connected, um, you know, there's no there's no weird continuity issues with anything that'll show up later in Firewalk with me. You know, it's it's like it's uh, it's just name dropped essentially. Another detail, and this kind of. Uh, this kind of follows how um you know the the diary uh got started with page one and you know like this is how i got the diary and everything um this kind of follows that formula in that um you know one of the one of the first entries is dale talking about how he bought his new dictaphone and um you know like these these tapes that we're hearing are the only things it has ever recorded and, you know, it doesn't go into anything before it. And that's just an easy, like, in-universe way to kind of say, you know, we're not concerned about the past right here. We are concerned with what's happening. So these tapes catch Dale um, in Seattle, Washington. He's there to conduct a seminar on fiber samples procedure which sounds absolutely joyful, doesn't it? Uh, but yeah, anyway, he, um, he gets a call from, from the home office to, to, head, to the, uh, head to the local office to pick up files on um, what we'll find out are on Laura and Ronette. Um, and then he has to fly to, you know, he has to fly through a storm on his way to Spokane, Washington, which is... Um, and about face from where he was really supposed to be going uh, before this case interrupted things, which was back to Philadelphia. So he picks up the car in Spokane, um, and then he drives to Twin Peaks, and that's when we get that full monologue um, exactly as he recorded it into the dictaphone um, in the first scene of the pilot. And honestly, these first couple of entries uh, make me make me believe why he might not like Sam Stanley. Uh, Cause um, you know, Cooper here is always talking about particulars. You know, he's uh, you know, how much is it? How, uh, how many things, you know, it's like, what exactly is on his plate? What is uh, you know, like how many exact breakfast options are there? Everything is itemized. And um, it's, it's a lot like how, you know, Sam goes into the Deer Meadow office and, you know, says, you know, I, I've calculated this whole this whole entire office costs less than twenty seven thousand dollars or, you know, like whatever he did. Um, it's very similar to how Cooper thinks. So I kind of wonder, does Cooper not like Sam because, you know, self-recognition fuels the dislike? Ah, oh, just uh, absolutely nothing intentional, but it's kind of a neat touch uh, looking back from the future as this as these tapes go on, it kind of works and like even though Cooper is kind of falling under the spell of Twin Peaks and like he gets a little more philosophical about it eventually like when they're talking about the evidence found in uh in Jacques Renault's cabin um he you know the the way he kind of itemizes it there too like even though he stops with that uh, because that would get probably very tedious for the listeners you know he he's still kind of in that mode where he he'll say to Diane Diane Agent Cooper here, a believer in facts and uh, yeah, facts and figures all, you know, it's, it's always in there, even as he gets kind of put under the spell of Twin Peaks. Another interesting interpretation that of uh, 
of how Agent Cooper sees things is um, after he's shot, um, some of the uh, some of the in between um, or the the connective tissue uh, entries around then he he notes that Doc Hayward gives him a good prognosis of his future. You know, completely sidestepping the fact that Doc Hayward's like continuously pestering him to stay in the hospital. It's like, you know, hey, why don't you talk to your psychiatrist about those wounds you know, it's, or your injuries? Uh, you know, just, just, you know, all the shade that Doc Hayward gives him for not wanting to heal the way Hayward thinks he should is just completely ignored here. Like it doesn't even matter to Cooper. <laughs> so, you know, there's a certain consistency there. <clears throat> um, we also get some comedy moments, which, you know, show off uh, Cooper's goofier side. And um, there's way less of these than there are in the autobiography. So they don't really stand out so much that, you know, they they break your suspension of disbelief. Um, some of those, you know, it's like Dale is literally kissing the ground after he arrives at Spokane after that storm he flew through. Um there's one where he's trying to record Canadian geese and um, they end up attacking him afterward. But um, that's a weird detail because he has a collection of master sound files that he has Diane pull out for him. So, um, you know, listen to the sounds, the meaning of the sounds, you know, the, the memory you can get from it or whatever reason. Um, he's he's an audiophile as well, just like um, pretty much every Blue Rose Task Force member. And then the last bit of comedy, there's one where um, it's after he's been shot and, you know, he's like applying antibiotics to himself and he's going, ouch, all the time. So like, ouch, uh, uh, antibiotics are tough to apply. Uh, ouch. Uh, there's, a, you know, Tibetan healing technique. You know, these masters, they can, ouch, get through their pain. And um, I believe I am on the verge of a breakthrough. Ouch. <laughs> so, you know, it's it, it it's endearing. Yeah, and it's it's endearing enough, like I said, not to break the suspension of disbelief. But there is one time in here that really does pretty much break it. And it's a full minute long recording that he does while undercover at One-Eyed Jacks. He would never be that conspicuous in the show. Um, but, you know, I mean, that's when we have to get a little bit more plot um, in it. So, you know... We, we just kind of have to look the other way on this one. Um, it's after he met Blackie, and it's right as he visually meets, I mean, a after he visually confirms who he thinks Jacques Renault is. Um, he, he would be way too surveilled for this, but um, the material is good because what's happening is Cooper is acknowledging the fine long, uh, <laughs> the fine line that he walks with, you know, his, his affinity toward gambling. You know, it's like he understands the gambling is tough and that it's, it's like right in there with the vices. So like, he doesn't like it, but he also understands that he's good at it and that there's an appeal to him. So it talks about the atonement that he does with his winnings. You know, it breaks it down into, you know, it's like, I, I do this, I do this, I do this, I contribute to this, you know, like, uh, and um, it ends up coming off pretty admirable. And, um, you know, I mean, it, it, it's also just justifying um, why Cooper ends up, you know, gambling on a regular basis for the Bureau. Um, so, I mean, maybe not admirable, but, you know, at least to himself, he's justifying, like, how he makes peace with this darker aspect of his own wants and needs, quote-unquote. 
Okay, the next question, the next main question that I have to ask about these tapes is how does Agent Cooper's understanding of Twin Peaks help our own understanding of the show's world? And there actually is a lot of good stuff in here. Um, I mean, the sense of nature is definitely there. I mean, as early as Seattle, Dale's talking about the clean air. And um, there's one episode where he's um, he's feeling the wonder of being able to see the entire Milky Way. Um, and um, then there's all the supernatural overtones paired with dreams here. Um, when talking about the Great Northern, he says... Sounds like the kind of place where you lie down or when <laughs> where when you lie down, you won't forget to dream. And um, a, cu- a couple of geography notes here. Um, Lucy actually anchors the Great Northern to Meadowlock Hill just below Whitetail Mountain. And um, I believe Whitetail Mountain is where Jacoby's uh, trailer is in season three. So. Uh, the Great Northern and Jacoby are kind of on the same side of the fence here, uh, as as opposed to, you know, the Blue Tail is where um, Briggs has his uh, more supernaturally aligned place. And another geograph- uh, geography note here is um, Jacques' cabin is deep in the woods near Pearl Lakes. So Jacques' cabin is actually really close to where Leland used to spend his summers. And... Um, that is actually way closer to town than I would have ever given it credit for. You know, conflating it with what we find out in the series, I mean, that would imply that Log Lady's cabin is also near Pearl Lakes. Though, you know, her being more White Lodge aligned, um, you know, she's not too close to Pearl Lakes. More dreamy connections kind of take place with... um at the morgue after after Harry and Albert duke it out, um, Cooper comments on Laura's face, which um, which reminds me of how Ben Horn was just like studying her face there too before the altercation, and um, so it's like we see Cooper doing that here now, which is I don't know. Uh, anyway, he says, "I know good is stronger than evil, but it's difficult to see it even in a place like Twin Peaks." So he's got this paragon status of the town. You know, it's like a lot of people give Cooper this paragon status. Like, oh, he's going to swoop in and save the day. He's going to be our knight. Um, But like, you know, Cooper's kind of doing that here. So like he's disassociating the physical location itself from what happens on it. And um, yeah, it's, it's interesting how Cooper can see the darkness in a way and also like see the light and like, not really put the two together all the time after learning about the bookhouse boys uh cooper comments this is clearly a place that inspires dreaming about darkness and light and who knows what dreams are real so yeah i mean again he kind of knows what this town is about and um i guess he's just entranced by both of it even the darkness another interesting comment is um Events converge, the theory of concentric thinking. And um, Cooper goes on to talk about how it doesn't exactly, like, maybe there isn't coincidence, or maybe, like, yeah. Uh, it's, um, it's It's a note that I thought was interesting, but, like, not necessarily, like, how to write about it. But, um... Clay Dockery, in his article, Diane, ranking my top five favorite Twin Peaks tapes, uh, had this to say about it. 
This is probably the deepest of the tapes as far as meaning, though it ranks a bit lower in this list for me because there is less of the personality of the Cooper I love on display. The tape is an essential part of the lore, though, and in it, Cooper spells out the theories at the heart of the show and his own, and his own demise. All of this strange and supernatural darkness that has overtaken the scenic town of Twin Peaks is interconnected. A concentric circle that is both the explanation for and the origin of all the dark and evil things that infest our world. Cooper here is not his light and breezy self, not focused on small details and a deeply felt, almost corny optimism about life. As he has been drawn further into the darkness, it has begun to overtake him. He will fight against it, but this tape has the ominous feel that the mythos is too much even for our hero. Agent Dale Cooper, we will learn, will never really escape these converging events. It will lead to the Black Lodge, the Doppelganger, and Dougie, and 25 years in the wilderness. It is all encapsulated here in this short missive to Diane, who of course will also be torn up in the darkness to come. Agent Cooper fighting to understand the darkness will be pulled into it. Or Agent Cooper fighting to understand the darkness will be pulled into it. So that was a really nice way to explain all the undertones around this time period of the tapes. Um, another interesting detail is when, um, you know, I, I kind of wonder if Cooper has a visitation from Laura here too. There, it's it's an off it's an offhanded comment where he slept badly and a face of a young girl living or dead he didn't know and not sure who it was haunted him all night so i kind of wonder like is this another one of those uh weird dreams where like it's sort of connected to things like you know it's like in the dream he might know who it is but then like when he's out of the dream maybe not i don't know but it, it gives me serious laura vibes here all right the next big question for to consider through this is what do we learn about how cooper views other characters and this is probably the uh the thing that um is is best for the listeners you know like this is the stuff that we would have really enjoyed at the time cooper says he's focused on breaking the surface of secrets and you know he, he basically rules out james because as cooper puts it serial killers aren't interested in in killing their girlfriends they prefer the company of strangers and um as far as harry goes he's more folk uh, cooper is focused on josie being dangerous than he lets on um you know it's like in in the show you know Coop, uh, harry says yeah well i love her and coop says well it's good enough for me but it's obviously not because he says harry is not just infatuated he's fixated with josie and um, speaks to her level of danger. So he's still got his eye out for his buddy. And then we've got some interesting details about Albert here. Um, after the Harry, Harry and Albert um, punching session at the morgue, um, Cooper says right off that Albert remains callous and insensitive. Um, Better prepare the appropriate paperwork for action on becoming a field officer, as I suspect Albert will try to file charges against Sheriff Truman, and I intend to defend Harry to the utmost of my ability. So Albert has a history of being this adversarial with people, and um, 
you know, being unnecessarily mean to strangers. Um, and this whole thing makes Bob Engel's monologue about, you know, I'm in with Gandhi and King and all that. Like, it makes all of that very, um, very much more out of left field than before. You know, it's like this could have been where we learn how Albert is to his own people. But it's not in here, you know, it's like we only get the Albert that we see in the show. And um, it's it's curious, you know, it's like, is is he always just protecting his own people? And like he's going through this world that he has to fight against constantly at all levels. I don't know. It's there to be had. And Cooper also has Audrey's number here this whole time. And um, it kind of gives gives pause to all the Cooper and Audrey shippers that um, have been over the years. Um, He says about her, she wants to play detective, uh, wants to help with the investigation. So like he knows that um, she's too young for him in a lot of ways, more than just, you know, her actual age. Uh, He says, I'm sure it's a young girl's romantic fantasy to her. She's 18, by the way, late August, uh, uh, late August the 24th or last August the 24th. I must remain alert and cautious in this area, Diane. She clearly doesn't understand the dangers involved, both physical and emotional. So he knows exactly how old she is, and there is a certain attraction noted. But he's also got her pegged as an immature innocent who's not grown enough, uh, who's not grown up enough to be involved in any of the darkness that she's looking toward or with him. From a facts and figures standpoint, he also mentions the that late night of malts and fries and, you know, her being in need of friendship. It was a chat that was for over an hour, so it didn't go all night. It just lasted a little over an hour. Um and I honestly do think that this is the in-universe proof that McLaughlin could have been working from as he read this for the tapes that, um, you know, it's like, no, he would not be involved with Audrey. And, um, you know, this could have been what helped him, what he helped use to convince Frost and Lynch why Cooper would have never been involved with a high schooler. Other than this, we do learn some things about Laura, but it's mostly facts. You know, it's like we learn some more details about her murder scene near the end when Cooper lays it all out. Um, the murder took uh, took an hour, and the scraps of paper that Hawk found, um, you know, it's like they don't necessarily know their diary pages or not because they are bleached, which probably means unreadable. Um, the blood on the towel is Leland's rather than Laura's. Um, well, I mean, they don't say Leland's here, but, you know, they say it's AB negative and it must be the killer's blood. Um, <clears throat> you know, it's it's good information to be given, especially right before the in-show entry when he thought he saw a giant and right before we would have seen Ronette's nightmare in the show. Um, except it's not the show. So what we hear here instead is Dance of the Dream Man to round out the tapes. And that's all we got about this one. So uh, we're going to go right into the sign-off. You have been listening to the Blue Rose Task Force podcast, a production of Ruminations Radio Network and TV Obsessive Radio. If you resonate with what you're hearing, please subscribe, rate, and review our show. And we would love to connect with you on Twitter at Blue Rose TF Pod, on Counter Social at Blue Rose Task Force Podcast, and Instagram and Facebook at Blue Rose Task Force. 
You can find me at JPB underscore Little Green on Twitter and John underscore The underscore Peaky on Instagram. Visit RuminationsRadioNetwork.com for additional great shows such as Cinephile Hissy Fit and Brevity Box. Find any number of classic 25YL Twin Peaks articles and content on many other TV shows at TVObsessive.com. And if you want to be a part of our next na- mailbag episode, send any comments, questions, or feedback to Blue Rose Task Force Podcast at gmail.com. We'll see you next week as we cover episode nine, the 10th overall episode of Twin Peaks. Until then, listeners, I'll see you in my dreams. And it's a mystery. It's a mystery. I wish you the best of luck. to kind of deepen and expand deepen the universe that the show takes place They'll really dig it. This is a, a gift.